Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Jason Hickel to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Jason is an anthropologist, author, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. He's taught at the London School of Economics, the University of Virginia, Goldsmiths, University of London, where he convenes the MA in Anthropology and Cultural Politics. Jason's research focuses on global inequality, political economy, post-development, and ecological economics. His most recent book, The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions, was published by Penguin Random House in 2017. Jason also serves in the Labour Party Task Force on International Development, works as a policy director for the Rules Collective, sits on the executive board of Academic Stand Against Poverty. Great. So thank you very much, Jason, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thanks for having me. So can you tell me a little bit about your work, what you do? I know you're an anthropologist. You've just written a very well-reviewed and received uh, excellent book on, on inequality, The Divide. Can you give us a little bit of background? What questions you're interested in and how you came to write that book. So the divide begins with the observation basically that uh, despite many decades of efforts in international development, the problem is not really being solved and in many ways is getting worse. We have 4.3 billion people living on less than $5 a day and the real per capita income gap between the global north and the global south uh, has tripled since 1960. So the question becomes, you know, why is this happening despite such an investment in development and um, the answer that I try, I try to give in the divide is that we have to think about this in terms of history and in terms of politics. So people often uh, think of poverty as a kind of um, a natural phenomenon in poor countries uh, or believe that it has to do with sort of the internal policy failures of poor countries. Uh, but this is a very narrow and ahistorical view. So if we, if we zoom out a little bit and um, take a broader view, then we find that in reality it has to do with how the global economy has been designed over the course of 500 years uh, from the onset of colonialism all the way to today's trade policies in a way that ends up benefiting a handful of rich nations at the expense of most of the rest of the world. And of course, this is very evident during the colonial period, which was an economic disaster for the global south, but um, was essential to the industrialization of the north. Um, but it's also really clear in the, way that, uh, in the way that the debt system works today, in the way the trade system works today, in the way that, fi- that finance flows around the world. Um, so I wanted to tell that story. Right. Um, it, it'll cover a lot of material there. Um, I, I'm interested in this idea of development and the idea, I guess, which is pretty commonplace that, you know, there's a arc of progress and that now uh, many of the what were, you know, the poorer developing countries, emerging markets, etc., are on the same trajectory and sooner or later we'll get to where so-called developed world is. And yet we have certainly seen uh, tremendous economic growth in, in, in China, uh, seen tremendous uh, alleviation of poverty, bringing people into the, the global economic system. Similarly in India, is that a, uh, a, 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 um, uh, a flawed way of looking at it? So I think that we need to think about this again historically. So if you look at the, the decades immediately following the end of colonialism, then what we saw was a kind of, a kind of development miracle across the global south. We had um, left-wing governments that were brought in by democratic elections, focusing on, uh, on, on, re- on building a kind of sovereign uh, economics with reforms like land reform, wage reform, uh, you know, investment in public, in public services, nationalization of key resources and companies, uh, trade tariffs to, that allowed them to build up their infant industries, 
uh, with subsidies, et cetera, sort of restrictions on capital flight, a whole broad range of, um, of progressive policies that were actually hitting the real causes of poverty. Um, and, so, and it was successful. Income growth rates were, were rising by 3.2% per year, which was uh, you know, double what the West achieved under uh, its, own, its own industrial revolution. So it was a really remarkable time. And you would think that Western powers would be happy about this because they have so long promoted this narrative of uh, um, Western investment in, in, develop, in, in development. But in fact, they were not pleased by this turn of events. And the reason is because these new progressive policies the South, the South was using to such great effects were causing them to lose their access to um, the resources, uh, the cheap labor, the cheap raw materials in the markets that they'd enjoyed under colonialism. And so they retaliated effectively, uh, initially with a series of violent interventions. Um, look at the coup in Iran in 1953. Um, look at uh, the coup in Guatemala in 1954, the coup in Brazil in 1964, uh, in Ghana, in Indonesia, in Chile, very famously, against Salvador Allende in 1973. In, uh, in literally more than a dozen occasions, the US, the UK, and often France were, were violently intervening in, uh, in, uh, in democratically elected governments in the South in order to reinstate their access uh, to those markets and resources, um, often replacing uh, deposed leaders with, um, with right-wing dictators uh, that would uh, be willing to uh, reverse those policies and uh, support the interests of Western multinational corporations. And that story really has been kind of erased from our memory, I think. Um, but what's interesting about that history is that Despite these, these incredible setbacks during this period of intervention, uh, the South was still rising, right? So um, they were finding ways to work together. Uh, they formed the non-aligned movement in the 60s. Um, they formed the G77 to argue for their, uh, their interests in the United Nations. Uh, in 1974, they passed the New International Economic Order, which was a phenomenal document that basically um, asserted uh, the rights of uh, Global South countries to determine their own economic policies in their own interests, uh, basically arguing for a fair international economic system. And it was passed in the halls of the United Nations. That was really kind of the height of this progressive movement in the third world. Um, but it all came crashing brutally to an end in 1980 when, uh, um, when the U.S. Federal Reserve increased interest rates on the dollar, right, dramatically, which triggered a, a, a huge debt crisis across the South. And because Wall Street banks were so heavily overexposed to third world debt at the time, they insisted that Washington intervene to roll those debts over, which they did, um, on the condition those countries would adopt what we, what we call structural adjustment programs, basically, again, reversing the progressive policies of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, liberalizing markets, getting rid of tariffs, uh, getting rid of land reforms and wage reforms, getting rid of capital controls, et cetera, which effectively, in one fell swoop, restored uh, uh, access uh, of Western uh, multinational companies to global South markets, um, but had devastating effects across the global South, slashing income growth rates um, uh, you know, by 60% um, across Africa. There was uh, a two-decade period of stagnation, poverty rates soared, uh, and so on. So this history to me is really important to bring back into the equation. There was actually, there was actually a period of successful developments across the South that we have forgotten about that has been in fact reversed uh, since the 1980s. Um, and so that's, uh, that's a story that I think we need to tell. Right, very interesting. And um, I guess China is, uh, 
a dominant economic power now, which uh, wasn't back uh, in those days. And uh, was was it in the same situation? Was it tied in in terms of debt? Is the Chinese story uh, the same? I mean, people talk about this being one of the great results of the recent economic growth. Is you know what's happened in China and you know the, the number of people who've been brought out of absolute poverty. And I know you've done quite a bit of research on these figures. Can you give us a perspective on that? Yeah, so if you listen to people like Bill Gates and Steve Pinker and the UN Millennium Development Goal reports and so on, then the story they tell you is that there has been this dramatic reduction in poverty across the world uh, because of the MDGs and aid interventions and development and whatnot. But what's interesting is that um, virtually all of those gains against extreme poverty have happened in one place, and that is in China. Uh, and what's important about that is that China is that China's fate in terms of economic policy is very distinct from the fate of the rest of the global south, okay? Because they uh, they were not subjected to structural adjustment programs. They were not subjected to uh, to Washington consensus forced liberalization during the 80s and 90s. They were allowed to determine their own economic policies and their own national interests, which they have done very effectively. And so this narrative that we have that um, that uh, that's uh, poverty is really dramatically decreasing around the world uh, changes if you take China out of the equation. And we see that at the dollar a day line, which is favored by the UN and the World Bank, there has been virtually no decrease in the absolute number in the in the number of people living in poverty since 1980. Um, and uh, and if you look at the five dollar a day line, which scholars say is a more accurate depiction of what is required uh, for a kind of meaningful human existence um, in terms of basic nutrition, basic life expectancy, you know, a decent shot at uh, reducing infant mortality and so on, then we see that, uh, that poverty has actually been growing since 1980 and, to now, and, and now is about 4.3 billion people, which is more than 60% of the population. So, um, so I think it's kind of dishonest to say that the development agenda has achieved these gains when, in fact, the gains have come from a place that was not subjected to the Western-led development agenda that was, in fact, a paragon of economic independence, uh, that being China. Um, so, and again, you know, this narrative that we have that uh, the, the global south is sort of catching up to the north um, over the past few decades, again, falls apart if you take China out of the equation. Um, take China out of the equation, what you see is that the, the real per capita income gap between the global north and the global south has tripled since 1960. The only exception to this rule is China. Uh, and so that's that's a really important distinction to make. Well, it's quite extraordinary. And uh Shocking to think how how embedded that story is in the myth. And I know Stephen Pinker's just come out with a new book, which has been lauded. And uh, again, this is one of the the, the backbones of that. Again, it's really is is about uh, how, how how these people have been brought out of poverty. And um, I think it's a really important distinction that you're making. Um, and it does uh, uh, pain and significance when when you think about it in that way. Now, in, in a recent interview, I, I spoke to Tony Juniper, and he, he said that he thought that inequality was 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 possibly one of the biggest environmental issues that nobody talks about and that that was you know tremendously important and I, I'm just wondering whether perhaps just for a moment talk a little bit about the connections you see between the environment and inequality I know there's been a, a lot of thinking now in environmental justice and uh, questions around that yeah yeah I think that Tony Juniper is absolutely right about this and, and it's for a number of reasons the first is that um, we know that in countries with high levels of inequality people are anxious about status and feel driven to a kind of competitive consumption uh, whereas in more equal societies, people are more likely to be happy with, with less. And so in that sense, uh, more unequal societies, according to all the data that we have, tend to be more envir environmentally destructive. And so that, you know, in and of itself is a, a strong incentive for us to pursue a more equitable economy. 
Um, but we also know that there's something about uh, the inequitable distribution of growth that creates a really serious problem for us, right? So right now, uh, if you look at the development industry, um, the sole objective, the sole mechanism virtually for eradicating poverty is by growing the global economy and hoping that some of it trickles down to improve the lives of the poor. But right now, only about 5% of new income from global growth uh, goes to the poorest 60% of humanity. So, um, you know, so, so growth is an incredibly inefficient way of reducing poverty, in fact. Can you explain yeah. that again? So, so 5% of growth goes to 60%. What's that actually mean? So that means that of all of the new income that we generate each year by growing the global economy, yeah. only 5% of that new income goes to the poorest 60% of humanity. So it's an extremely slow rate of trickle-down. Okay, so basically what that means is that you have to have a massive expansion of global income and consumption and production and ecological degradation, you know, in aggregate, simply in order to improve basic living standards at the bottom, uh, if, if you see what I mean. So in order to lift everyone above the, uh, the $5 a day line through growth, we have to expand the size of the, of the global economy by 175 times its, presence, uh, its present size. Um, 175 times more extraction and production and consumption simply in order to eradicate poverty is completely mad, uh, ecologically insane, um, and highly inefficient, right? And even if it was possible to grow the, the, the global economy by that much, um, it would, of course, trigger such uh, dramatic ecological collapse and climate change that it would reverse any gains that are made against poverty in the process. Uh, and so there's something about the inequality built into... Uh, growth itself that is a serious ecological problem for us. But I think that the third way to think about the problem of inequality and its relationship to ecological uh, catastrophe is, is the fact that um, virtually all of our ecological overshoot right now is being driven by a handful of rich nations. Okay, so, um, so right now, uh, on a planetary level, we're overshooting our planet's biocapacity uh, in terms of planetary boundaries and so on by about 60% per year. Okay, and that's um, that means overshooting our planet's ability to absorb our waste and replenish the resources that we use. Um, and again, this is due almost entirely to excess consumption in rich countries. Uh, rich nations consume many times more in terms of resources and emit many times more in terms of greenhouse gas emissions than poor countries do. Uh, in fact, if we were all consuming at the level of everybody else in the rest of the world, then we would not have any global ecological overshoot at all. That gives you a sense for how serious... Uh, a, a driver, excess consumption in rich nations actually is. That's shocking. So uh, what is the prospect for the policies that did seem to work in the global south and that were uh, taken over by the Washington consensus, which does seem to be under pressure at the moment to some degree, at least in terms of rhetoric? Mm. Um, yeah, so um, it was in the late 1990s that the World Bank and the IMF were finally forced to concede that structural adjustment programs were extremely damaging to Global South economies, um, and they ostensibly backed away from them, uh, replacing them with, um, with what they call poverty reduction strategy papers. But basically, the only difference between structural adjustment programs and uh, PRSPs is that they allow Global South nations to... Um, to spend their budgets on social services, which was um, effectively prohibited before. The idea was that you have to, if you have any excess money in the budget, you have to send it um, back to uh, the banks and your, uh, and your creditors in the form of debt repayment. Um, and that's been eased off a little bit in favor of, uh, of investing in social services, which has had a huge, um, a huge impact. But 
But really, um, the argument that I want to make in terms of what kinds of economic policies are necessary to, uh, to deal with inequality and global poverty is that we have to think in terms of uh, the geopolitics of the global economy, right? So what we need is to move from a frame that focuses on charity to a frame that focuses on justice, um, focusing on upstream causes. So we need widespread debt cancellation uh, across um, the South uh, to get rid of unpayable debts that... Um, that basically shackle global South nations to to the policy agendas of their creditors. Um, right now, there's about $700 billion in dictator debt floating around the, the global South. That needs to be uh, canceled. Um, we need to democratize the World Bank and the IMF and the WTO. I mean, these are the institutions that that control economic policy around the world. And in the World Bank and the IMF, uh, the global South, which has 85% of the world's population, has less than 50% of the vote in these key in these key institutions that govern macroeconomic policy. The United States has a veto in these institutions. So, you know, it's very clear to me that there's a kind of global apartheid at the center of macroeconomic governance that somehow we've all become comfortable with, and that needs to be confronted. Um, it's not a radical demand, really. It's, it's a demand that's been made by the Global South for, uh, for many decades, simply asking for a fairer voice in decision-making. Uh, I think there's other interesting ideas that we could that we could talk about. We could talk about what it might look like to have um, a global minimum wage. Uh, a number of economists have talked about this, um, thinking about uh, you know the possibility of of setting a minimum wage in each country at 50% of each country's median. So it would fluctuate depending on economic circumstances. It would uh, have no negative impact on um, on uh, on existing comp- competitive advantage, and it would actually actually have very little negative impact on on ordinary people in the West, right? At the same time, because we know that you can double the wages of sweat of sweatshop workers in Mexico, and that would increase the costs of clothes in the U.S. by only about 1.8 percent. Yeah, so there are ways that we can achieve uh, a sort of fair global economic system uh, that we need to be talking about. And what's interesting about that is that what that would do. It, was allow, it would allow us to, to, to move towards eradicating poverty um, around the world uh, by shifting the share of global GDP from rich nations to poor nations, okay? So um, effectively, you can, you, can, you can succeed in eradicating poverty um, without any additional global growth at all, right? Uh, simply by introducing a fairer economy so that, uh, so that mo- the, uh, the world's majority is able to um, to claim yeah, a, a fairer share of, uh, of, uh, of the income that we produce each year. Right, that's a very interesting question there, this question about global growth and a fairer economy. And as you pointed out, the percentage of the growth that's actually going to the poorest in the, in, in the world. Because this is a, a key policy agenda, it's a key policy agenda in economies throughout the world. We've already seen uh, just recently with the talk of Trump, uh, Trump's uh, tariffs that everybody's getting threatened by the prospect of global growth in one area of, of consensus. And presumably uh, deeply connected to that with is, is corporate growth and corporate profits and, and so forth. So this question of growth... Um, it, it, it seems to be a really, really important issue. I think most people intuitively would have a sense that, you know, that, that, that however they define it, that people are, you know, that we're consuming an awful lot of stuff, you know, and, and, mm. and, and even in a, in a kind of fairly weak critique of, of the, the, the society that we live in, they would, you know, recognise that. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And also, I guess, you talked about, we talked about the degree to which certainly the rhetoric um, from some of the international institutions about the neoliberal economics is moving to some degree. But there 
there certainly is tremendous momentum and, again, rhetoric around changes in the global economy to, to deal with some of the environmental issues. Now, we can talk about the pace at which that's going and, and the depth of which it's going. But certainly, there's the, you're starting to see more companies uh, looking at sustainability issues. We're looking at finance investors starting to look at these kind of issues. We hear more people talking about you know, uh, uh, low carbon growth or carbon you know, uh, questions around that. So certainly some momentum and talk on that front. Um, can you talk a little bit about the connection between those two? Yeah, let's do this. So, um, so over the past couple of decades, of course, there's been this increasing awareness that it is ultimately GDP growth that is driving ecological degradation. Okay, there's a there's a very tight coupling between GDP and emissions, between GDP and resource use, between GDP and ecological impacts. Okay, so the question has become. Uh, if we want to reduce ecological impacts and emissions and resource use, which we know that we have to if we want to get back down to planetary boundaries and prevent you know, catastrophic climate change, um, is it possible to do that while at the same time continuing to grow the global economy? Right? And remember, uh, the objective of perpetual and exponential economic growth is the primary policy objective of virtually every government on the planet and is written into our international agreements like the Sustainable Development Goals, which, um, on the one hand, you know, of course, beautifully um, uh, call for us to uh, to reduce our resource use, to get back um, down to uh, to levels of consumption that are in harmony with the planet, and so on. But at the same time, in Goal Eight, right in the center of the SDGs, call for uh, the equivalent of about 3.05 percent GDP growth per year through 2030, and presumably indefinitely. Right, so. Um, so how do we reconcile this firm objective for economic growth with our commitments to, um, to ecological sustainability? In 2012, during the UN Rio conference on, uh, on sustainability, uh, there were a number of reports published by uh, leading international institutions, the OECD, the World Bank, the UN Environment Program, um, all promoting the idea of what they called green growth. And since then, the idea of green growth has really become sort of uh, a leading uh, piece of of the, uh, of the discourse out there about how to reconcile growth with ecological limits, right? The idea is that we can continue to grow the global economy uh, indefinitely uh, without any uh, change to the status quo in terms of rich people's consumption uh, and living standards and so on, right? So long as we're able to roll out the right government policies and the right um, technological innovations to decouple uh, GDP from ecological impacts, okay, and emissions. What's absolute decoupling? Uh, Absolute decoupling is is when you uh, is when you when you're able to increase GDP, while at the same time uh, not only um, slowing down the rate of increase of environmental impact, but actually decreasing uh, the rate of environmental impact. So reducing resource use, reducing emissions, reducing ecological impacts, uh, while at the same time growing the economy. Um, now, what's interesting is that when those reports came out, there was literally no evidence provided in those reports that this kind of decoupling was possible. That it was possible to, uh, to increase GDP while at the same time reducing these key impacts okay, uh, on a global scale. But since then, a number of studies have come out to address precisely this question. What's interesting is that literally all of them have come to the same conclusion. Uh, in study after study after study, the conclusion is that absolute decoupling of GDP uh, from resource use uh, is, is, is not possible on a global scale. So there, w- there was a belief um, up until even very recently, this was going to be physically possible. And, but again, scientists are coming out of the woodwork in study after study to point out that it's in fact not. 
Um, and that, you know, that has really shaken people's faith in the possibility of continuing uh, this objective of economic growth. How, I'm just curious as to how, looking forward, you can set, make those kind of assessments in terms of decoupling, because every day we hear of new technologies that are, you know, new hydrant technologies, new technologies to suck greenhouse gases out and, and some of them seem to be you know have, have legs um, and uh, you know we don't have to be a techno utopian to think you know that it, it should be reliant on that that that's going to change the world but yes we have seen again and again tremendous technological breakthroughs is it not possible that we might see something similar uh, with respect to carbon so let's um let's separate uh, two key issues here one is decoupling of GDP from emissions, and the second is decoupling GDP from resources. Let's talk about emissions first. Uh, so if you look at the Paris Agreements, um, right, which relies on, um, on pledged emissions reductions from each uh, signatory nation, what you see is that even if all nations meet their pledges, which there's no guarantee of this happening because the pledges are voluntary, uh, but even if they do, we're still on track for 3 degrees to 4.5 degrees of global warming by the end of the century, way over the 1.5 degree limit, way over the 2 degree maximum limit, uh, and those levels of global warming will be uh, catastrophic. We, we know that for a fact. Um, so, so why is it that the Paris Agreement allows this kind of meager reductions in emissions um, while at the same time insisting that we're going to stay below uh, 2 degrees Celsius? The reason is because the Paris Agreement relies on uh, the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change models for keeping under 2 degrees Celsius. Now, those models uh, for 2 degrees Celsius rely on uh, a technology known as BEX, and this is really important to understand. Uh, BEX stands for Bioenergy with Carbon Capture and Storage. And the idea is that, um, uh, is that we can basically overshoot um, our emissions targets uh, in the first half of the century because in the second half of the century, we're going to have this magical new technology that's going to suck that carbon back out of the atmosphere and store it underground. Okay? Um, the technology itself is, is basically the idea that we're going to build huge uh, uh, tree plantations around the world. We're going to harvest those trees, uh, turn them into wood pellets, uh, burn them in power stations for fuel, for, for energy, capture the emissions that are, that are emitted from those power stations, solidify them and store them deep under the ground. Okay, so basically it's a net emissions technology that allows us to have energy that at the same time sucks carbon out of the atmosphere. It's a brilliant idea. Um, and, and the Paris Agreement, in its present form, relies on this idea. The emissions reductions that countries are committing to presuppose this technology. Okay? And this is important for us to understand because most of us don't get the fact that this technology, BEX, lies at the heart of the Paris Agreement. Now, what's interesting is that scientists are insistent that this assumption is wildly dangerous. We don't know if the technology will actually work, okay? And what that means is if, if it doesn't, we're locked into um, uh, um, an extreme global warming pathway from which we will not be able to escape, okay? But the second concern is that even if we could get the technology to work, it would require so much land, uh, land equivalent to about two times the size of India, that it would be impossible to feed the world's population while at the same time rolling this technology out on the necessary scale. Okay. Not only that, but it would, it would require such intensive monoculture um, and investment in chemical fertilizers and pesticides that we would be overshooting all sorts of other planetary boundaries on phosphorus and nitrogen loading, on deforestation, uh, right, on biodiversity loss, etc., etc. So, um, so there's really no way this technology is going to work uh, without causing... 
um, us to transgress tipping points on other social and ecological indicators. So the scientific consensus now, and, and I'm serious when I mean consensus, is that we cannot rely on this key geoengineering technology to, uh, to get us out of climate catastrophe, uh, catastrophe. So if we get rid of BECs as an assumption, what we know is that rich nations will need to reduce their emissions year on year by 12% starting now, actually starting in 2015. <laughs> um, now, okay, so this raises the question, is it possible to make such dramatic cuts in emissions while at the same time growing the economies of rich nations, which remember is their objective? And the answer is unequivocally no. Uh, we can maybe make cuts in the region of 4 to 5% per year, but 12% is out of scope. And 12% in, in the context of a growing economy makes it even, even more difficult. And so what, what becomes clear here is that uh, our real enemy here is not our technology. Our technology is marvelous. Our real enemy here is growth, because uh, for every increment we grow, it wipes out the gains that we make in decarbonization uh, with technological innovation. And again, study after study demonstrates this very clearly. And so the only conclusion here is that, uh, here is that uh, is the only way to achieve the emissions reductions that rich countries need um, is to shift to a post-growth economy. And that's something that we need to start taking very seriously. That needs to be at the heart of our debate about arresting uh, our trajectory towards climate catastrophe. Um, and right now, no one is, is really talking about that, except for, <laughs> except for the climate scientists themselves. Uh, but it's so difficult for policymakers to swallow that it's, uh, it's kind of, um, it's too scary for them to touch. Yes, post-growth is one way of putting it. Degrowth, another. And I've had the experience of speaking to some economists about that and uh, I've had some shocking reactions, uh, shocked reactions. Um, so what does that look like? I know degrowth economics, it's, uh, it's been around for several decades, probably in different forms. Um, and um, it's still probably a fairly early stage in its development of an idea, as a, as a set of ideas, I guess. Um, what, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? What, 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 what an economy. Um, I mean, you say we, we 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 like growth. We take growth for granted, and yet you've got economies like Japan, I guess, that haven't really grown. But what 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 would a, a, a post-growth economy look like? Mm. Okay, I'm going to talk about that in one second. But first, I just want to make one additional point about this question of decoupling, if I may. Um, and you can include this if you want to or not. Um, but uh, sometimes when I make this argument about how it's impossible for rich nations to achieve the emissions reductions required of them while at the same time growing their economies, the response I get is, okay, um, what if we come up with fusion power? What if we come up with, um, uh, with some magical new technology that will allow us to have 100% clean and renewable energy tomorrow? Okay. Uh, so first of all, we know for a fact that that's not on the cards. And because we only have about 20 years left of our carbon budget for 1.5 degrees um, or 2 degrees, uh, then we don't have that kind of we don't have that kind of time to sort of, uh, to hope. Uh, we have to deal with technology we have now and what is, and, and what is within scope. Um, but let's just imagine for the sake of argument that we do come up with this magical technology, that we have fusion power and we change the entire world's grids over to fusion power um, tomorrow. Uh, so this might solve our emissions problem, but it does not solve uh, the other dimensions of our ecological crisis. Now remember that um, global warming is only one of the five planetary boundaries that we're presently already transgressing, right, with, uh, with biodiversity loss and uh, chemical loading in the land and, uh, and, um, and so on being other key planetary boundaries. So even if we do solve the emissions crisis, then 
what are we going to use that, that new 100% clean renewable energy for? We're going to use it to, uh, to expand industrial agriculture, to build more skyscrapers, to, uh, to build our transportation infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, to consume more stuff because our economies are built uh, such that they require exponential growth. And that is our objective. And so even if it was growth powered by clean energy, there's still the dimension of, of ecological impact associated with GDP growth. Um, and, and on this, the science is extremely clear that absolute decoupling of GDP from resource use, which has these ecological impacts, is in fact not possible. It's literally not possible for us to grow the economy while at the same time reducing resource use um, in the long term. Uh, and so, um, you know, uh, if we solve the emissions problem, then we're jumping out of the frying pan and into the flames. Uh, and so what we need to do, again, is deal with the real deep driver of ecological crisis, which is the fact that our, our economic system requires exponential growth. We need an economic system that does not require exponential growth, that is, um, that is going to facilitate human flourishing without this kind of endless expansion. So what is growth good for, Jason? Well, um, growth uh, is important in, uh, in poorer nations that lack the aggregate resources necessary to reduce poverty and improve people's lives and you know, build health systems, build schools, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? So in very poor nations, we know that um, that growth is very tightly coupled with an improvement in people's lives. In rich nations, there is no such tight coupling. Okay? We know that, um, that uh, you know, if you think about uh, the U.S., for example, um, since 1970, uh, America's GDP per capita um, in real terms has, has more than doubled. Okay? And yet today, uh, the poverty rate is higher, real wages are lower than they were in the 1970s. And there's been no uh, increase in, ha in happiness indicators. So why is that? Why was the economy in 1970 actually more efficient at reducing poverty and improving people's wages and so on? It's simply because it was a fairer economy. It distributed the yields of the economy more fairly uh, to, to people who could benefit meaningfully from it, right? So in a, in a context of high inequality, like the US has, like the UK has, like most nations in the world have, um, uh, key social problems can be solved um, without growth simply by redistributing the yields of what, uh, of what the economy already generates year on year. Okay? So, um, so sharing in some way is like an effective antidote to growth, uh, whereas right now our politicians see growth as a preferable alternative to, uh, to redistribution or equality. Yes, because calling it a fairer economy as against, let's say, degrowth. I mean, this has been an issue, you know, the, the heart of you know, left-wing thinking for, for so long. Arguably, fiddle around with the, you know, at the edges, change some of the incentives, change some of the parts of the, you know, capitalist system that aren't working, make it a little bit fairer, make it more distributive, you know, uh, over time. You don't think so. So if you look at, at most left-wing political parties today, um, then what you'll see is that they differ from their conservative counterparts in that they, uh, they, they want a fair distribution of growth. But on the question of growth itself, they are united. There's no daylight between the, the Labour Party in the UK today and the Tories in the UK today on the question of growth. Both parties are pursuing it as aggressively as possible. And so, um, and so really this idea that the left has, you know, um, that the traditional left has the solution to ecological collapse is really... Um, I just don't buy it. I mean, there's no question that principles of fairness and redistribution can help us, but we can do that, we can do that without growth. Um, we can eradicate poverty in this country right now without any growth whatsoever, simply by redistributing the existing yields of the economy. We don't need to, to plunder the earth for more. 
we need to share more fairly what we already have from this abundant planet. So, um, so some people, you know, when they hear the word degrowth, which again is what we argue is necessary in rich nations, rich nations basically have to have to plan to carefully scale down their aggregate economic activity year on year in order for us to avoid ecological collapse, right? Um, people are afraid of that concept because it sounds so much like, uh, like austerity, right? But think about what austerity is for. Austerity is about, um, is about cutting social services, cutting wages, uh, making people work more and more, right? In order to do what? In order to jumpstart growth again, right? That's what we're undergoing in the UK right now. The conservatives are very worried about the fact that our economy is not growing, and so they want to slash our spending on social services, make people work more, etc., simply in order to get growth going again, okay? What degrowth argues for is exactly the opposite, that if we, um, that if we invest in social services, invest in a fairer economy, then in fact we don't need to pursue growth and the aggressive entailments that it has. We can improve people's lives right now without additional growth. Uh, so that's really the, the message that we try to get across. And, you know, there's some really remarkable examples of much more, uh, of economies that are much more efficient at delivering high standards of living without huge piles of consumption, right? So look at Costa Rica, for example. Costa Rica has, um, has higher life expectancy than the U.S., has happiness levels that rival uh, Scandinavian nations in the top 7% of the world, um, has literacy rates that are equal to the U.S., has an excellent healthcare and education system. And they accomplish all of these incredible social indicators with one-fifth of the GDP per capita that the U.S. does. That is an economy that is, that is much more highly efficient uh, than the U.S. at generating well-being with uh, a lesser amount of consumption. Um, but you don't need to go as far as Costa Rica to find examples of this. Look at Europe itself. Um, Europe has higher social indicators across the board than the U.S., and yet they have um, GDP per capita of, uh, that's 40% less than what the U.S. has, right? So um, with, with significantly less resources, they generate significantly better social outcomes. These are the kinds of models we need to be following into the future. How does this fit in with globalization is the big question here. I'm just thinking about this, the political project behind moving towards a post-growth type economy. We've this kind of tightly coupled uh, system at the moment with global multinationals. We've got the international finance and, um, and, and various, uh, well, legacy multilateral governance, um, shall we say, that, that interact together. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's interesting because, um, in, in a way, these big multinational listed firms are a key part of the problem uh, because it's from them that we get a key piece of the growth imperative. Okay, So if you think about your pub down the road, which is a, a business, let's assume it's not a Weatherspoon, let's assume it's a family pub, a family-owned pub. Right? The, the idea of that pub, the objective of that pub is not to grow exponentially but rather to, um, to make enough profit year on year, probably about the same each year, in fact, to pay their workers, to pay the bills, pay the rents, um, and, uh, and have a salary for the boss to sort of feed her kids and whatnot, right? So, um, but if you look at listed companies, their, uh, their key objective, because they're beholden to shareholder pressure, is to grow their profits year on year, right? So having the same amount of profit each year, which, which would be a steady state economy, is not, uh, is not an option for them. If they, if they have that, they're going to be taken over by somebody who is growing. Uh, so growth is kind of this deep imperative located at the hearts of, uh, of corporate logic. 
Um, and we also know that uh, it's pressure from corporations that requires states, that requires governments to pursue policies of continuous background growth. Because without background growth um, of at least 2% per year, then uh, big firms uh, um, uh, begin to fail. Okay, so, um, so if we reprogram companies such that um, they, can be, uh, they can be safe and satisfied with a steady state of production um, rather than exponential growth, then, uh, then that's a huge step towards a post-growth economy. Um, and you can do that simply by changing shareholder value rules, right? Um, a good example here is um, if you take American Airlines, recently they decided that they were going to give their workers a raise, um, which had not happened for many, many years. As soon as they did that, shareholders uh, punished them brutally um, by withdrawing their, their investments from them, right? Uh, and so American Airlines had no choice but to, but to step back from its policy of giving fair wages to its workers. And the same is true of companies that want to be more ecologically friendly. Shareholders will punish them if they're not delivering everything possible towards shareholder returns. So we need to limit the power of shareholders over, um, over companies like this so that companies can think in terms of the longer term, think in terms of steady state, think in terms of needs instead of endlessly manufacturing new wants which is, in many cases, their primary objective. Uh, and all of that is essential to developing an economy that does not rely on endless growth. What would uh, corporations in a post-growth economy look like? Well, I have a few thoughts on that. One is this, right? So I've already discussed the importance of shifting away from a shareholder value model that requires this kind of exponential growth in corporations. But the other key thing here is, is this, right? So I mean, that's a, a key first step. But think about the amounts of, of a company's profits that they tend to invest in advertising, right? And the purpose of advertising is not to satisfy people's needs and make their lives, and make their lives better in any meaningful sense. The purpose of advertising is effectively to psychologically manipulate people in, or, um, in order to get them to, to buy things that they might not otherwise be seeking out, okay? And this is one of the main drivers of, of excess consumption in rich nations. So... I mean, personally, I would like to see serious curbs on advertising, which would um, be, a, 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 you know, an important way of curbing this kind of psychological imperative for growth in, uh, in particularly rich, in rich economies. But also think about um, if, if companies weren't, weren't compelled to, to, uh, to, to grow year on year, then they probably wouldn't feel the need to invest so intensively in advertising. And maybe they could shift that money instead towards research and development. Um, in technological innovation and so on, which is exactly what we need in order to solve the ecological crises that we face. In a way, I would say that corporations are kind of victims of the tyranny of growth. And many CEOs that I've spoken to are, are much more creative than that. They, they actually have ideas for what they want to do in the world, ways they want to improve the world, um, that they, they can't, in fact, pursue because they're subject to this tyranny. Okay, so if, if we can find ways to, over, to, throw, to throw off that tyranny, then um, I imagine our companies could be more creative, um, more inventive, uh, and more ecological. But here's one key issue for me, right? And that is that multinational companies, which rely on kind of this globalized network of production and consumption, okay, this is one of the key things we're going to have to move away from as we move towards a more ecological economy. This idea of shipping goods, you know, unnecessarily back and forth across the seas, which, con which contributes enormously to, to emissions and other ecological impacts, uh, has, has got to be reduced. On this, I, I, I'm aligned with, with John Maynard Keynes, who said that um, you know, he was pro-globalization of ideas and arts and literature and culture. But he said, but goods, wherever possible, should be homespun. 
And I think that's probably a, uh, a principle that we're going to have to shift towards uh, to make our economies uh, more sustainable. That's very interesting. And, and we're looking at corporations, we talked about the momentum, there are some of the larger investors are talking about this increasingly, there's green bonds, they're, they're looking at uh, companies that can issue sustainable bonds that are doing it more cheaply. You can see some of the larger corporations, uh, you see Danone becoming a B corporation, uh, there's quite a bit of momentum. What about the government side of, side of things? If you can see some momentum there, where maybe with corporations, uh, maybe the thin end of the wedge in terms of not being so driven by growth, perhaps maybe starting to think of other ESG type factors. What about the, 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 the central role that governments have for, for growth in terms of achieving its economic objectives, employment and so forth? And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a number of key things that governments can do, and in some cases are starting to do, to move towards a post-growth economy. One of the most obvious and, and definitely the easiest thing to do would be to stop pursuing GDP growth as a political objective. Okay, so as long as, um, as long as we're measuring economic success by GDP, then we're going to have a problem because, uh, because GDP is a problematic measure, uh, right? Because it, it doesn't account for ecological and even social negatives. Okay, so if you cut down a forest and sell the timber, then GDP goes up. But it doesn't account for the loss of that, um, of, of that forest in terms of uh, habitat for endangered species, in terms of a carbon sink um, in an era of climate change. And so on. So, so what we really need is we need a, a measure of measure of assessing economic progress that also accounts for ecological degradation. And there are many options out there, right? It's not a radical idea to call for um, um, overthrowing the concept of GDP growth. Even people like Joseph Stiglitz, you know, and Amartya Sen, very popular and establishment economists in many ways, um, have made that call. Uh, and there are alternatives we can look at, like the Genuine Progress Indicator, which starts with GDP and then subtracts ecological and social negatives. If governments were, um, were to, set, to set as their target the maximization of something like ge- the, the Genuine Progress Indicator, then they would be incentivized to pursue social goods while minimizing ecological bads, and, and that would really change the game. Uh, so that's one easy thing that governments can do. And uh, there's a number of states that are already bringing things like GPI on board alongside GDP as measures of economic progress. So that's a big, that's a big crucial step. The idea has been around for a while, though. Is there still momentum behind this idea? I mean, interesting to think about, you know, how governments would change, how they take this into account. In your, you're, you're looking at, uh, I guess, the post-growth uh, alternatives, various institution formats changing over time. How do you see the change happening uh, with respect to these kind of questions and, and the government? You've got the corporations, you've got, you've got individuals, you've got consumers, you've got citizens, really, not consumers, citizens as well, how their their views get enacted. Because right. this, this idea has been around, there was quite a bit of momentum and it seems to slow down a little bit again. What do well, you think? Well, so let's think about, about some of the other reasons that governments pursue growth, right? What, one of the key ones is what we call the productivity trap. So the idea is that capitalism, as you know, has this, this built-in tendency to make, to make labor more productive. So the idea is to produce more stuff with less labor input, okay? And there's been this long-term tra- uh, trajectory towards increasing labor productivity. Now, the problem with that is that as labor becomes more productive, then you need fewer workers to produce the same amount of stuff. And so um, capitalism has this, has this tendency to create unemployment as it chugs along. Okay? Uh, and then uh, the government facing the social crisis of unemployment 
um, then has to find ways to mop that unemployment up, to create new jobs. And this is literally what all of our politics is about, if you think about it. It's all about job creation, job creation, job creation. And how do you create jobs? You grow the economy. And so simply in order to solve the crisis of unemployment that capitalism perpetually produces, you have to grow the economy to mop those workers up. Okay? Now, what if we were able to shift to an economy that did not require growth in order to provide incomes to people? And one easy way to do that would be to shorten the working week. Right, which allows us to, um, to benefit uh, from increases in labor productivity without generating mass unemployment. Right? So we just share the necessary labor more fairly. This frees people up um, to have more time uh, for important things in their lives, which makes them happier, increases their well-being, um, reduces stress and negative health outcomes from overwork. And at the same time, you guarantee that, uh, that everyone has, um, has a job and therefore a livelihood. <laughs> without the necessity for continued economic growth. That's one way to do it. Another way would just be to bypass labor altogether and provide a basic income to everybody. And there are models for how this can be done in rich nations, which would allow people to, um, to opt out of work, therefore uh, producing less, while at the same time being able to meet their, uh, meet their, meet their needs in the economy. Um, so there are ways to sort of get around this kind of the productivity trap that drives this imperative for economic growth at the government level. Well, you mentioned technology and productivity, and certainly there's been a lot in the media and a lot of research and, and worries about robotics and, and what that might bring. That might have a, a really widespread and deep impact on, on some of the questions you're talking about there. I'm, I'm interested, uh, I guess, finally, on the political project of turning this these ideas, which uh, are, are very interesting, in, into reality. How do you see change happening? Are there some examples of economies which are have, have, have uh, taken these ideas on board that are really embodying some of these key distinctions that you're making? And how do you see change happening? Um, so it's interesting because right now we don't have any examples of countries that have voluntarily planned a kind of degrowth scenario. Okay? But we do have interesting examples of accidental degrowth where, where nonetheless social outcomes have improved. Right? So if you look at, um, at Costa Rica during the 1980s, they actually had a period of, of declining and stagnant GDP. And at the same time, during that precise period, we're able to improve key social indicators, right? Uh, and they did that simply by, again, investing in um, one of the world's best universal healthcare and education systems. And, and so there are ways, you know, there, there's examples that we can see. I, I think Japan is another one. Despite um, a couple of decades of economic stagnation, life expectancy in Japan has continued to improve. People's sense of well-being, of, of, uh, of life satisfaction, has continued to improve. So we have examples of, of economies that are not growing or even slightly declining that are yet at the same time able to improve social outcomes. And that's, and that's exactly what we need to look at as key blueprints for the future. So crucially, here's the thing is that, is that we don't have the answers in, uh, in, um, in the community of scholars that's working on degrowth economics. All of this is new, uh, is new territory. Um, and so what we're trying to do is invite economists to join our efforts to imagine uh, models that might work to allow us to enhance human flourishing while at the same time reducing our material consumption, reducing our emissions, uh, scaling down our economic activity. Because, you know, when it comes down to it, here's the thing. We have to confront, quite honestly, the science out there, which is extremely clear on this point that, uh, that we can't grow... Uh, the global economy indefinitely, and so what do we do with that? With that information, we can't just deny, we can't just deny it. We can't just put our hopes in some future technology that might that might hopefully save us. 
I'm not against technology. I'm extremely pro-technology. We need all the technological innovation we can get. But every model that has been, uh, that has been done so far on, on what can be gained through rapid technological innovation shows that it is not enough in the context of, um, of continued growth. And so we need, to, we need to face up to this fact and think about what an economy will look like that does not, that does not rely on, uh, on growth. Uh, and, and this really is going to be essential to, uh, to maintaining a habitable, a habitable planet into the future um, and achieving the SDGs and ensuring that we avert our trajectory of climate breakdown. That's very interesting. I just one question I'd like to just maybe we didn't necessarily focus on it with that uh, quite so much. At the heart of this we, we question, we've got the global south, which needs economic growth. Uh, what kind of economic growth, the level of economic growth. But um, can you talk about the challenge of having a, a system? H- how, how does it work? How do you, countries that, that, that have uh, genuine needs for, uh, for their people, poverty alleviation, how, 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 how do you square the circle there w- yeah. with their needs? Um, yeah, so look, this, this is crucial because um, we are not calling for degrowth across the board, right? Uh, uh, right. We recognize the need that some poor countries are going to need to grow. The crucial thing here is that we have to make that growth as socially and ecologically efficient as possible. Okay, so um, what I mean by that is that we, we need the growth to be pro-poor as much as possible. So virtually all new yields from growth need to go to the poorest so that growth is maximally effective at improving the lives of the people that need it most. Okay. Um, and right now, that is simply not the case. Again, the vast majority of new income from growth goes, goes, to, the rich, uh, goes to the richest in the world, but also within nations. Uh, and that clearly needs to change. Um, so we already have this principle right, of, um, of, uh, of differentiated responsibility um, for averting ecological breakdown, written into the Sustainable Development Goals, written into the Paris Agreement. The idea is that rich nations, which have contributed most to ecological breakdown and most to greenhouse gas emissions historically, have the greatest responsibility to, uh, to make advances towards reducing that impact. Okay? Um, and if we know that, that, uh, that degrowth is going to have to be part of that equation, then rich nations need to start. Uh, rich nations need to build models that allow them to, to scale back economic activity while at the same time um, enhancing human flourishing. Uh, and that, that's, that's core to their responsibility because historically they have contributed the most to ecological degradation and also... As a result of their accumulation through this deeply unequal global economic system, they also have the greatest amount of resources um, at their disposal uh, to pursue this transition. Are you optimistic, Jason? You've talked about the narrowing window of time to do is to deal with these uh, huge ecological, environmental uh, questions. Uh, we're talking about a massive change in, in economic priorities and political operations, presumably to, to, to move to this kind of post-growth economy. And, and more generally, uh, how, how do you deal with the, these questions? Are you optimistic some days, pessimistic the other? How do you th- think about it? Um, so let me put it this way. At the heart of everything I've been saying is that ultimately we're going to have to evolve past capitalism as an economic system. And I, th- I think we need to be uh, upfront about that fact. Now, what's interesting is that um, I'm not here calling for a kind of return to the stodgy old USSR or something like that. I mean, that was an economic and social disaster as well. And crucially, the thing about old school socialism is that it too relied heavily on exponential growth, right? The USSR was completely addicted to growth and was in a growth race with the US for a very long time. 
Um, so that's not the solution here. The solution here is to evolve past capitalism to something better. And this is interesting because um, when have we ever shied away from innovation? All right. When was the last time we, uh, we, we looked at a smartphone and said, this is the best smartphone that will ever be produced and will never be surpassed and we should not even try? Um, obviously, we all believe that it's going to be improved upon. And so why would we not take the same approach to our economic operating system? Why would we not uh, seek out ways to evolve towards something better than capitalism, sloughing off this um, old 19th and 20th century system that was maybe useful in its time, but it is not, is not fit for purpose uh, in the 21st century. So I think this is not about uh, some kind of stodgy, you know, hair-shirted approach to, uh, to limits, but finding a way um, to evolve into a better way of being human, a better way of thinking about economics um, that facilitates human flourishing and creates a more intimate and exciting world for us to live in. It's true that the timeline we have is extremely short because we're racing against uh, what is very clearly the clock on climate change and other forms of ecological collapse. And so really it's a race between this ecological timeline and the evolution of human consciousness. Um, I think that our consciousness is moving in the right direction, but we need to speed it along as rapidly as possible by you know, taking advantage of the sort of rapid communication that the internet allows, spreading ideas as quickly as possible, making those ideas open source so that anyone else can build on them, can use them, can improve on them, etc. Um, I think that's really the only way that we'll be able to, uh, to rise to this key challenge of the 21st century. Well, thank you. I think in order to deal with these problems, uh, challenges we face right now, I think a key part of it will be to, to be able to generate new visions of what the economy, what the, the way we live, the, the, the world we live in um, operates. And I think what you're, you're talking about, the work that you're doing is a fundamental to that. So thank you so much for your time today, Jason, and sharing all this uh, fascinating research and work that you're doing. And I wish you the very best of success with it in the future. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 